Well, last week we talked about... Oh. There we go. Seriously. <laughs> Alright, so it was my, it's my turn now to bring up Sister Teresa. And uh, it's her birthday. It just passed. And we wanted to honor her birthday. And we want to say how blessed we are to have you here as our Commander-in-Chief. So to speak, our shepherd, shepherd's wife. Amen. Thank you very much. And we're going to talk to you Hallelujah. Thank you. I'm to get a complex with more people leaving. Last week we, we talked about clay in the hands of God, so we're going to stick with the clay theme, kind of. We're going to talk about clay, turning clay into rock. Um, we're going to take a look at Peter's life. And then next week we'll take a look at Matthew 15. And I, you may not realize, but at the end of each segment of Jesus' ministry, he has a meal. There's the feeding of the 5,000, and that was at the end of his ministry in Galilee. Um, next week, we're going to take a look at the feeding of the 4,000 uh, that you see in Matthew 15. That's at, again, the end of his ministry before he heads into the Passion celebration, Palm Sunday, the Last Supper is the last meal that he has before the next break in ministry or next change before he goes to the cross. So, that's next week. This week we're going to take a look at Peter. I like looking at Peter. I can understand Peter. You know, he's one of those guys that you can kind of get a look at and go, okay, something about him, you know, that whole idea leaping out of the boat. But how cool would that have been? Don't know that I could have done what Peter did. I may have been like the other disciples, not really wanting to head out onto the top of the waves, but, you know, Peter's got that passion, he's got that desire to, to go and see the Lord. So we're going to take a look at five lessons that Jesus teaches Peter in his time with him that helps Peter to go from being clay to being the rock mm. upon which the Lord builds the church. Thank you, Lord. You know, it, it's fitting, too, because we're hearing all sorts of things about the change of the Pope. You know, they headed to Conclave on Tuesday. Yeah. It was so funny. I was teasing Teresa that, you know, oh, what am I going to do when they call? <laughs> <laughs> How cool would that be? <laughs> yeah. It's very disconcerting, though, I, you know. I haven't, I've lost, I've lost so much weight that I don't have my signet ring on anymore, but I have a signet ring, and there's this little anecdote before we get started. We were, I was down at um, the, the dean of the college, his brother had died um, six years ago in a workplace accident at the Newark airport, and so I had gone down to be with the dean during the funeral, and he'd asked me to to do a bunch of things for the funeral. I actually got to do the funeral. I got to, you know, I had the, I, 
got to speak in the Catholic Church, which is unheard of for Protestant ministers. You know, it just doesn't happen. Um, so it was fascinating. But just as we were ending, his cousin, we were dropping her off. She lives in Manhattan, so she was taking the train back. And at the time, I had my signet ring on, and she's Catholic. So she goes to, she goes to leave, she kisses my ring, and I'm going, really? Because apparently that's something in the Catholic Church where they'll kiss the ring. All I could think of was, where's the closest jewelry store? I now need to get my ring cleaned. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, it was just, it was a, a unique experience. Um, and that story had absolutely nothing to do with anything. That one was free. <laughs> <laughs> So every once in a while those get out, but not to worry, I'll hear about it on the way home. So I won't I won't put you through that again, I'm sure. I've got a two hour ride home to be told. Oh no no, you shouldn't have started with that. <laughs> For those of you that were here when the sirens were going off back during the summer, and I got distracted wondering if there was an air raid siren. Because, you know, it occurred to me we're on the second floor here. Oh, look, it's a second story that has nothing to do with anything. So, there's a fire truck out here just with the siren going. And so I just, we'd driven through thunderstorms on the way in, and I went, oh, man, I hope that isn't a tornado. So I asked if there was an air raid siren. Getting in the car later, Teresa said, dear, I just want you to know. That message started like this. Tree, 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 tree. <laughs> From the Dr. Doolittle movie. <laughs> when the dog is watching the trees. Or he's watching the lines. <laughs> the dog says to Eddie Murphy, I'm starting to get sick. Oh, I'm starting to not feel so well. He goes, look higher. And so he goes from going line, line to tree, tree, tree. So that was what that was like. I'm sure that's what it feels like right now. <laughs> Um, in the uh, Greek text of the Gospel, Jesus is referred to as teacher 45 times. Um, that which Jesus did is called teaching 45 times. Those who followed him were called disciples. Disciples is learners in the Greek. And it, disciples are referred to 215 times. In the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew 5 through 7, it's described as when Jesus taught the people. Teaching is an important part of Jesus' ministry. And so he, we see here with Peter that the Lord uses anything as a classroom, whether it's the Sea of Galilee, an old boat. Peter no doubt looked the part of a fisherman, but he was... A rough, rugged, with the jaws of a fighter and tough leather skin, having spent his time on the Sea of Galilee. But through the next five sections of scripture, we're going to see how he became a big-hearted individual, a rock with a soft, teachable heart. And that's what all of us need to have, is a soft, teachable heart. Mm. Peter, the son of the sea, and from his encounters with the sea, Jesus uses that to help help him make the migration from being clay into something solid like a rock. Mm. So in Luke chapter 5, then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. 
When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners of the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both of the boats, so much so that they began to sink. And when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, I am a sinful man, O Lord. In this passage, Jesus boards Peter's boat and uses that as the platform to teach the crowds. Because your voice naturally carries over water. So Jesus, understanding, hops into the boat and is able to teach the crowds. And he's also able to have a private classroom moment with Peter afterwards. He tells Peter to drop his nets in, and Peter says, Hey, wait a second, we've been fishing all night. We haven't gotten anything. Now, I know very little about fishing. Um, other than if I go fishing, whoever else is there is going to do very, very well. Um, we, there was a gentleman in, our, in one of the churches where I was on staff, and him and his wife had this beautiful cottage up at this lake, and they said, oh, why don't you take your family, go up, and there's this cottage, and there's this little boat, and I, you know, we had Christian at the time, Maria wasn't born, and I'm going, oh, right, there's a boat, we can do a little bit of fishing. Found some fishing rods, you know, I'm all set. We head out into the water, and I'm going, oh, right, yeah, we're going to catch some fish. Not a thing. You know, keep putting the stupid thing in, I'm going like it's the right time of day, I'm using the right depth, you know, no stick of dynamite, which would have made it a whole lot easier, but, <laughs> so this other, this old guy pulls up, like 15 feet away from the boat, <laughs> snap, whoo, she's loading his boat, every time I turn around, oh, I got another one, <laughs> there's three of us, Teresa's looking at me, Christian's looking at me, oh, hey, Obviously not my gift. <laughs> so the guy keeps going, oh yeah, the trick is you should have used worms. I'm using like all lures. And I'm going, oh, why, why didn't somebody else tell me this? Now that I'm out in the middle of the lake, there is no worms. It's very disappointing. So after that, I kind of gave up fishing. It wasn't one of those things. You know, went out once with my brother wearing hip waders, walking through a creek. We're wandering down. He's catching fish, and I'm going, oh, good. This is such a, a great experience. Why is it that when I was a kid, I could catch fish, but now it seems I no longer possess that ability? You know, Peter, though, is a master fisherman. And he's sitting there, and he says, Lord, we've done it. You know, and I'm sure he's going, kind of like, really? Dude, we've been out here all night. You know, this is what we're good at. This is my livelihood. And yet you want me to, okay, fine, hey, we'll do it. So much is the catch that it almost brings the boats in. And through that encounter, Peter sees the Lord as master and himself as a sinner. He, the Lord catches his attention, mm -hmm. using his own trade to catch a hold of him. Yes. God can do little with us until we realize that left to ourselves, we're sin-riddled and iniquity-filled. It's kind of like you got to hit bottom. You know, people say that when you're dealing with addictions, you can't help somebody until they've hit the bottom. That's right. 
And this is one of those encounters until we learn and see ourselves, and that's what the scriptures do for us. You know, they point out the sinful condition that we find ourselves in. As a child, Dallas Willard lived in an area of southern Missouri where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. And they had more of that than they could use. But in his senior year of high school, the Rural Electrification Administration extended its lines into the areas where they lived. And electrical power became available to households and farms. When those lines came by their farm, a very different way of living presented itself. Their relationship to fundamental aspects of life, daylight and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty, work and leisure, preparing food and preserving it, could then be vastly changed for the better. But they still had to believe in the electricity and take the practical steps involved in relying on it. You may think this comparison rather crude, but in some respects, it is, but it helps us understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of heaven if we pause to reflect on those farmers who in effect heard the message, repent for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, their scrub boards and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. The power that could make their lives far better was right there near them, where by making relatively simple arrangements they could utilize it. Strangely, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. Others could not afford it, or so they thought. To be sure, the kingdom has been here as long as we humans have been here and longer. But it's been available to us through simple confidence in Jesus, the anointed, only from the time he became a public figure. Think about Peter, how it would have been different if he hadn't put the net into the water. He had to choose to follow what Jesus was saying. And we look at it and go, it seems very simple. And yet there was effort required on his part to lower the net. Still had to make that step of faith. Fred Caddick in an address to ministers caught the practical implications of consecration. To give my life for Christ appears glorious, he said. To pour myself out for others, to pay the ultimate price of martyrdom, I'll do it. I'm ready, Lord, to go out in a blaze of glory. We think giving our all to the Lord is like taking a thousand dollar bill and laying it on the table. Here's my life, Lord, I'm giving it all. But the reality for most of us is that he sends us to the bank and has us cash in the thousand for quarters. And we go through life putting out 25 cents here and 50 cents there. Listen to the neighbor's kid's troubles instead of saying, get lost. Go to a committee meeting. Give a cup of water to a shaky old man in a nursing home. Usually giving our life to Christ isn't glorious. It's done in all those little acts of love. 25 cents at a time. It'd be easy to go out in a flash of glory. It's harder to live the Christian life little by little over the long haul. We want it to be quick and easy and over. The dedication and the perseverance that it's required make it difficult. This is 25 cents, 50 cents at a time. But it's worth it. The next lesson we see is in Matthew 17, 24 through 27. And this is where Peter and Jesus have gone into the temple, and this tax collector races up to Peter and goes, Hey, 
Did you pay your temple tax? Jesus told Peter to go to the Sea of Galilee and fish. Right? It's provision. Peter's used <coughs> to fishing. The first fish Peter caught had the tax money in its mouth. From this encounter, Peter saw Jesus as provider and himself as needy. Again, he had to step out. He wouldn't have seen the provision if he hadn't listened to what the Lord said. He had to go and do something. He had to go and catch a fish. And I'm sure that he's going, oh, great. I've got to go down. I've got to go fish. Then I've got to go to the market. I've got to sell this fish. And he, I'm sure when he's headed down, is thinking, oh, man, this is quite the thing. Really, this is how we're going to do it? And yet, a common thing that he thought, an everyday occurrence as it used to be, God uses totally different in his life. A new lesson. A new provision. I'm sure it wasn't common to pull a fish out and find money in his mouth. No. If it were, everybody would be fishing. <laughs> Even me. And I'd find the dynamite because I wouldn't rely on the line. It's the provision of God. But how many times do we wait and expect the provision and then kind of loop around, trying to do it our own way still? No. Okay, God, well, we're going to have to kind of do it our own way. You know, well, this is the way I've always done it. Nate, I'm, I like to say I've got the Presbyterian mindset, and that's you know, confusing childhood. Grew up going to Catholic school, and on weekends in the Presbyterian church with my dad. You know, it was like Catholic school, Presbyterian church, couldn't get more further apart. Mm. But, you know, I love the Presbyterian work ethic. You know, I like, I was talking to my dad about it <clears throat> one time, and I said, hey, you know, it's hard when you have to rely on God. Mm -hmm. It's hard when you have to rely on that provision. Because I want to just do it my way. Yeah. I do. I want to go use my talents, my gifts, my abilities, and I like to say, okay, God, I just need you to bless it. Uh -huh. Just kind of put your hand over this, and we'll, we'll make a great team. But that's not the lordship of Christ. Amen. You know, and that's kind of what Peter runs into here. The provision of God is to go down and fish. No other instruction to go and do anything else with the fish. Because when he pulls it out, he goes, oh, look at that. The temple tax right there in the mouth. But it was provision in a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, these are tough things. But how many times do we pray for the Lord to meet a need? But then kind of get nervous and race off and do it our own way. Yeah. You know, that's difficult. It's not, it's not an easy thing. Charles Allen in God's Psychiatry tells this story. The Allied soldiers gathered many hungry, homeless children after World War II, and they placed them in large camps. The children were abundantly fed and cared for. However, at night they did not sleep well. They seemed restless and afraid. Finally, a psychologist offered a solution. After the children were put to bed, they each received a slice of bread. If they wanted more to eat, they could have it. But this particular slice was not to be eaten, it was just to hold. The slice of bread produced marvelous results. 
the child would go to sleep subconsciously feeling there was something to eat tomorrow. That calmed the child. In Psalm 23, David says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Instinctively, the sheep knows the shepherd has made plans for its grazing. He knows the shepherd has made ample provision, so he will lie down in peace with the piece of bread in his hand. I can't tell you in my life how many times I've gone, man, I'd like to have that piece of bread. Because it always seems like the Lord brings the solution just in time. Mm -hmm. You know, just in His time. Mm -hmm. I admit, I'd like it about two weeks early. You know, nicely wrapped up in a bow. So that I know, you know it would be really great if it just showed up and said, the Lord's provision on it. You know, nice bow, <laughs> easy to see. Right away. But it, it doesn't tend to work that way, at least in my life. We were talking about it on the way in. We were talking about our nephew's planning his wedding. And so we got to talking about our wedding. And if you see on Teresa's hand the wedding ring, the engagement ring, all things that God provided, you know, and he did a tremendous job. I didn't know where we were going on our honeymoon until I opened the envelope that I received that morning when I walked into the church. Because as with all things, you know, I turned to God and prayed. You know, that was, okay, God, I got, you know, $47.50 a week. That was, who big bucks. And you can't do diddly, even back 17 years ago with $47.50. Um, and I'd had, I was a youth pastor in, out in Plymouth Bay. And um, so I'd been praying. We had gone and we'd looked at some places. And I mean, we got married in um, Freiburg, Maine, which is right next to North Conway, New Hampshire, um, which for some reason seems to be like the land of the most expensive hotels. Um, and we'd gone and looked at a few hotels, and we looked at this one place, it was really, really nice. I mean, it was beautiful, it was in Jackson, New Hampshire, and absolutely gorgeous. And they said it's $250 a night. And I went, what? $250 a night? Who stays here? The Pope? Which actually he doesn't. Apparently he goes to Gondolfo. But, total aside. So we looked at a few other places. And for some reason, all these hotels, you know, it's $200, $250 a night. So, again, one would have great experience in my life as I'm praying when God... I guess you're going to have to provide a tent or something, because I just have like no idea what we're going to do. But, you know, you've provided every step of the way, so I've got to rest in your provision. Mm. So I get this phone call from this couple at church, um, and they say, we were talking, and we really want your first night to be good. So we'd like to pay for your first night after you get married, that first night. We want you to stay in a nice place. And so they said, have you seen anything that you like? And being the great man of faith that I am, I said, no. <laughs> no, I haven't seen anything. Because there was absolutely no way my faith was good for $250. It just wasn't. <laughs> I'm getting a phone call. And I, I know this family, they got little kids. Three of them. Three little toddlers. Two in diapers. You know, and diapers are like $5 bills taped on the butts. <laughs> Very expensive. So, and then they, they say, well, 
We, we'd like to do this for you. And I, so, <laughs> the, I trust your judgment. Whatever you guys pick will be great. Because <laughs> I know, hey, I have $47.50. <laughs> Whatever they pick, even if it's a tenth, it'll be a nicer tenth than the one I could have got. So, I just went, okay, that's trusting in God. It's going to be what it'll be. And so that day I showed up for the wedding. And as I came in the door, this gentleman's waiting for me, and he slips, he slips an envelope into the tux, right, right there. Okay, again, being such a great man of faith, I don't dare open that. <laughs> so I'm going, oh, please, God, please let it not be the rat motel, you know, <laughs> or bed bunk hostel, none of those places. But just, so we, we go through... We get out, we get into the car, Teresa says, so where are we going? <laughs> oh, yeah, looking like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> Pull this envelope out, open it up. And they paid for us to spend two nights at the Inn at Jackson, the very place that we'd gone and seen. And instead of it being the $250 room in the main hotel, they had gotten a whole cabin. And so for two nights, Definitely the very nicest place we've ever stayed. To this day, the very nicest place we've <laughs> ever stayed. So much so that, you know, we're so sophisticated, dinner came with it. And so we, we sit down to have this very nice dinner, and they have these napkin rings made out of silver. So they, they're there on the table. The first thing the waitress did when she got to our table was take the napkin. <laughs> so I was sitting there and I'm going, wow, I must really look like a thief. <laughs> she said, whoosh. Yep, we just wanted those to be in there. These are made out of pure silver, so we'll just... And they took and put them away. But it was the nicest, nicest, absolute nicest thing. And it was God. You know, it was God's provision. And when we rely on God, we get to see that great provision. You know, and then you have those moments that you're able to say, okay, okay, God. And that's the same moment that Peter's had here. It's another step in his journey of faith. The next step that we see is in Matthew 8. Verse 23 through 27. Now this is the severe storm that Peter's boat gets caught in. And in terror, the disciples wake Jesus up. And Jesus scolds them for their weak faith, speaks a few words, and the storm ceases. Now, in this encounter, Peter sees Jesus as a protector and himself as fearful. How many times do we go through a severe storm? And that's the lesson the Lord's hoping to teach us. Hoping to have us learn to see Him as the protector. We sing the song, In His name is a strong tower. We run to Him. How many times do we stand outside or race under a tree? Hoping for protection. When the Lord's got His arms open wide so that we can turn to Him. Hannah Hunter, author of 
hinds feet on high places, was once paralyzed by fear. Then she heard a sermon on scarecrows that challenged her to turn her fear into faith. The preacher said, A wise bird knows that a scarecrow is simply an advertisement. It announces that there's some very juicy and delicious fruit that's, had to be, that's there to be had for the picking. There are scarecrows in all the best gardens. If I'm wise, I too shall treat the scarecrow as though it were an invitation. Every giant in the way that makes me feel like a grasshopper is only a scarecrow beckoning me to God's richest blessings. He concluded, faith is a bird which loves to perch on scarecrows. All our fears are groundless. We talked about a number of months back in Chronicles, what to do when you don't know what to do. And the army's marching on Jehoshaphat. Mm -hmm. And it looks like utter destruction. Yeah. And instead of it being utter destruction, it's simply God bringing the bank to the Israelites. Rather than making the Israelites go all the way to go get it, he has the armies of Ammon and Moab pack up, carry all this loot, bring it nice and close so that the Israelites just have to go out. But what if they cowered in fear? How many times do we miss out on God's blessing, on seeing Him as our protector because we're so afraid and not recognizing the scarecrows as signs of blessing? During World War II, a military governor met with General George Patton in Sicily. When he praised Patton highly for his courage and bravery, the uh, general replied, Sir, I'm not a brave man. The truth is, I'm an utter craven coward. I have never been within the sound of a gunshot or in the sight of battle in my whole life that I wasn't so scared that I had sweat in the palms of my hands. Years later, when Patton's autobiography was published, it contained the significant statement by the general, I learned very early in my life never to take counsel of my fears. The fears shouldn't be directing us. Our trust in the Lord should be what's directing us. In Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33, we see Jesus sending the disciples across the Sea of Galilee. At about 4 a.m., Jesus approaches the boat walking on the water. And this is where Peter gets out of the boat and walks toward Jesus. But the moment he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he starts to drown. And from this encounter, Peter sees Jesus as his confidence and himself as a doubter. The Lord has trouble using timid, fearful, anxious, and cowardly people. He uses daily life situations to establish himself as our confidence. We have to let those lessons be learned, though. Otherwise, we tend to see the same thing coming up again and again and again. If you start to see troubles repeating in your life, really good sign that God's trying to use it to help you. Yes. Trying to help you overcome that so that you can learn a lesson from it. Amen. Remember he uses all things for good? John White talks about any time that we're engaged in a work for God, we're likely to encounter the poison tips arrows, the poison tipped arrows of ridicule. A barrage of truth mingled with lies, innuendo, malicious gossip, and implied threats is the normal experience of leaders. Malice arises from fear, and fear is a common response to someone else's success. 
So expect to have your faults thrown in your face, your folly mocked, and your real progress belittled. When this happens, by all means allow yourself to be cut down to size, but do not let yourself be dismayed or intimidated. Remember that the chorus of contempt has a diabolical conductor whose aim is to make your knees buckle. He likes tongue-tied, ineffective Christians and plays on your secret fears and inferiorities to make you one of them. I am full of fears and chasms of inferiority. Whenever I've listened to the enemy pointing them out, I've stopped working for the kingdom. Yet in those moments when I have refused to listen to him and have feebly walked in obedience, I've been astonished at what God has done with my feeble performance. All from John White. And it's true. You can tell when things are coming up, when good things are happening in your life, that's when those other things start coming too. Anything to knock you off stride. Anything to knock you down. Anything to get you distracted. In Uncommon Decency, Richard Mao writes, Theologians tell a story to illustrate how Christ's triumph presently benefits our lives. Imagine a city under siege. The enemy surrounds the city, will not let anyone or anything leave. Supplies are running low, the citizens are fearful. But in the dark of the night, a spy sneaks through the enemy lines. He has rushed to the city to tell the people that in another place, the main enemy force has been defeated. The leaders have already surrendered. The people do not need to be afraid. It's only a matter of time until the besieging troops receive the news and lay down their weapons. Similarly, we may now seem to be surrounded by the forces of evil, disease, injustice, oppression, death. But the enemy has already been defeated at Calvary. Things are not the way they seem to be. It's only a matter of time until it becomes totally clear that the battle's already over. You've already won. It's already been accomplished. And so if you find yourself under siege, just know the enemy's already been defeated. You're coming through it victorious. Don't lose heart. Don't feel like this is the end because it isn't. The Lord's already done it. We've read the last chapter of the book. We win. <clears throat> William, um, John 21, verses 1 through 17 is our last lesson. This is after Jesus' resurrection. We talked about this last week. Peter decided to go fishing. He's kind of gone right back to the beginning. After fishing all night without catching anything, so yeah, I'm in good company. Hey, the man was a professional fisherman. After spending all the night again without catching anything, he sees Jesus standing on the shore. Jesus told him to throw his nets on the other side of the boat, and when he did, he caught more than he could handle. And back on shore, Jesus ate with Peter and recommissioned him as his apostle. And this is when Peter comes full circle, the lessons have been learned, and he sees Jesus as his very purpose for living, and himself as the Lord's servant. Thank you, Lord. This is Peter's final lesson. This is his graduation from clay into rock. Because his very purpose is found in Christ. Yes, thank you. When William Borden graduated from Chicago High School in 1904, he was heir to the Borden Dairy Estate, which made him a millionaire. For his graduation presents, for his graduation present, his parents gave him a trip around the world. And as the young man traveled through Asia, the Middle East, and Europe, 
he felt a growing burden for the world's hurting people. Finally, Borden wrote home to say, I'm going to give my life to prepare for the mission field. At the same time, he wrote two words in the back of his Bible, no reserves. During his college years at Yale University, Borden became a pillar in the Christian community. One entry in his personal journal that defined the source of his spiritual strength simply said, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. During his first semester at Yale, Borden started a small prayer group that mushroomed into a movement that spread across the campus. By the end of his first year, 150 freshmen were meeting for weekly Bible study and prayer. By the time Bill Borden was a senior, 1,000 of Yale's 1,300 students were meeting in such groups. Borden met with fellow Christians to make sure every student on campus heard the gospel. Often he ministered to the poor in the streets of New Haven, Connecticut, but his real passion was missions. Once he narrowed his missionary call to the Kansu people in China, Borden never wavered. Upon graduation from Yale, Borden wrote two more words in the back of his Bible, no retreats. He turned down several high-paying job offers and enrolled in seminary. After graduating, he went to Egypt to learn Arabic so that he could work with Muslims in China. While in Egypt, Borden came down with spinal meningitis. Within a month, he was dead at the age of 25. Prior to his death, Borden had, written, had wrote two more words in his Bible. Underneath the words, no reserves and no retreats, he wrote, no regrets. We would look at it and say he was supposed to be a missionary. We forget about the thousand people at Yale whose lives were impacted. Was his life a failure? No. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets. He lived his life to the fullest. The thing we need to take from this is that when the Lord's our very purpose, it starts now. It doesn't start in the future. It starts now. No reserves, no retreats, no regrets needs to be what we're aiming for. Can God use you? Yes. Can God use any one of us? Yes. Do you have to have the ability to speak? No. Here's another story. Blair Pascal. Uh, Blaise Pascal, sorry. One of history's greatest scientists was not converted through his scientific queries. Rather, when the scientist's carriage was once suspended on a bridge, and the man was hanging between life and death, the only thing Pascal could think of was the Christian conviction of his sister and her witness of Christ. Pascal was the inventor of the barometer. He was a brilliant philosophical scientist. But the one thing that kept piercing his heart till he surrendered his all to Christ was the Christian witness of his sister. In martial arts, combatants learn to use anything at their hands as a weapon. Whether it's tree limb, broom handle, or stapler off the desk. In the same way we see Jesus has used whatever was at hand as a teaching tool to develop and disciple Peter. And he does the same in our lives. Anything can be a lesson learned. Anything. Jesus uses it all to help develop us. All of life becomes a classroom. Class is in session every day. Peter saw Jesus as master and himself as a sinner. Peter saw Jesus as provider and himself as needy. 
Peter saw Jesus as protector and himself as fearful. Peter saw Jesus as his confidence and himself as a doubter. It took seeing Jesus as the master, the provider, the protector, and his confidence to learn that Jesus was the very purpose for his life. Hallelujah. That was what he came out with. And it was only when he got to that point in his relationship with the Lord that God was able to use him mightily. Hallelujah. That's where we're headed in our lives. So no matter where you are, and it, you learn these lessons again and again and again. You know, you don't just learn Jesus as the master once. You keep getting reminded of it. You keep getting reminded that he's the provider. Sometimes you're able to look back. It was interesting during the snowstorm because my son went out in the Boston Bruins jacket that I had given to me back when I was a youth pastor. And so he's running across the front yard playing with his sister in the snow. And as he ran by, I went, man, God, I remember when you provided that jacket because it was the hottest day of the year. I'd already started praying because I recognized that it, for some reason in my life, it seems to take extra long. And so I'd been praying that God would make provision for me because I knew I needed a winter jacket. And I'd already worn through the winter jacket that I'd had the previous season. I tend to be kind of hard on things. And I'd have ripped the previous jacket. I had always wanted a hockey jacket. You know, when you grow up playing hockey, there's just something about it. And when I saw that, you know, this family had me come over and they said, you know, we were in the store and God brought you to, brought you to our minds and we got you a jacket just like we got our sons. And they gave it to me. It was the hottest day of the year. The hottest day in August. And I'm sitting there and I'm going... I don't care. And I've got the jacket on and I'm going, oh yeah, oh yeah, I have a hockey jacket. Lost about three pounds just putting it on because it was so warm. But my son ran by and I remember thinking, whatever, whatever happens, God's the provider. God's the provider. Amen. You know, I've seen God provide other things. I've seen Him provide groceries. I've seen Him do all those other things. But it's still good to get that remembrance. Amen. It's still good to remember God's provision. Confidence and protector leads to the very purpose. So what's God teaching you today? What has God been teaching you this week? What's he going to teach you in the week ahead? When we're looking out for those things, we need to make sure our heart's open. Remaining teachable is hard because we don't want to have to move you know, sometimes getting on a plateau is nice. They say in South Africa, that's where Table Rock is. A giant, huge, flat rock. You know, that's the type of plateau I'd like to be on. I don't think I'll ever get onto that plateau. It seems like the Lord goes, oh yeah, okay, oh, you've, you've, conquered, you've conquered K9, oh, let's put you on Everest. You know, mm -hmm. but that's what it is. You're constantly moving forward with the Lord. And it's not about you becoming something great. It's about understanding the greatness of our God Amen. and how He's able to meet us in any situation with any need. Thank you, Lord. He wants to turn you and I from clay into living stones, strong and established for His kingdom that help to reach many, many more. That's what it's all about. That's why 
we look to the scriptures. Let me encourage you, if you have cable, check out this, this show of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Amen. It's on from 8 to 10 tonight on History Channel. Yep. There's a number of churches that are doing studies on it. Um, the other reason why I would recommend that you look at it is so you know, because you're going to encounter people that will talk about what they've seen on the Bible. You know, you'll encounter people that will treat it any number of ways. Some of them may respond mockingly, but that's okay. We still love them. It's not about, it's not about having the greatest words. It's about showing Christ's love to this community, to your neighbors, to your friends, to the cashiers that you come into contact with. So, let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just, we thank you for your word.